as always, we hope you enjoy the rest of our service. Well, welcome, everybody. Again, I had to get that straight. It's the, again, the last weekend of this series, and I know a lot of pools are probably closing this weekend. You're tr probably trying to get your last uh, pool sessions in this weekend. If you want one of those, <laughs> grab it. I think Anthony claimed one. Mike just claimed the other. There you go. Tough luck. <laughs> They've been given away. But we are in this series, Your Cell, Your Soul, with uh, eternal wisdom for the smartphone age. All the way back the first weekend of July, we started this as our summer series. And, and we've been in it all summer, and the timing is because it was 10 years ago in 2007 that the first iPhone was released. And since then, 1 billion iPhones alone have been sold. Not just smartphones, but iPhones alone. Since the start of this series, I did some research, about 43.1 million iPhones alone have been sold since we started this series. And it's why in 2016, the editors of Time Magazine, they named the iPhone the single most influential gadget of all time saying that it fundamentally changed our relationship to computing and information, a change likely to have repercussions for decades to come. So the question we've been asking all summer is what are these repercussions? Because screens are everywhere. There are now more smart devices on the planet than there are flesh and blood human beings, which is a remarkable statistic. So the question is what is the proper place for all these screens and all this technology in lives that want to keep Jesus Christ in his proper place, at the center of our hearts, the center of our focus, and at the center of our minds. But all these technological inventions and, and innovations are really invitations for us to take a look at what we believe and how we walk it out in our current context. And for our current context, we have a timeless text, the word of God, the eternal truth that's in it that speaks to every one of these issues we've hit on. Some of the issues throughout the summer have been situational awareness, the power of our words, authenticity in a selfie culture, rest and burnout, recapturing wonder and what that does for our worship. And last week we talked about optimism in an outrage culture. And you can podcast every one of those, but tonight I want to talk about perseverance. Perseverance in three very specific uh, areas of our life. Perseverance in our learning, perseverance in our battling, and perseverance in our loving. And to start from Scripture, I want to look at Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. As you're turning there, there was the generation Moses led through the desert and the wilderness that didn't go into the promised land. And then there was the generation that Joshua led, that he led, that conquered the promised land. And this is the generations after that this is speaking of in chapter 3 of the book of Judges. And it says in Judges chapter 3, verse 1, I'll throw it up on the screen as well. It says, these are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. These are the nations, the Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the mountains of Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands the Lord had given their ancestors through Moses. Before we go further, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for tonight. God, we thank you for the truth we were able to sing in worship. We thank you that we've already celebrated what you did on the cross, what you did through the grave and your resurrection for us so that we can walk in grace, walk in faith. God, and I just thank you that through Jesus Christ, you've opened up the word 
God, all the promises fulfilled, Lord. God, all the things in here, Lord, God, that can speak to us tonight, I just pray you would bring hope to the hopeless, encouragement to the discouraged, strength to the weary, Lord. God, let your spirit minister through your word, through my mouth. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. So in 2007, right, when people were firing up their first iPhones, unboxing them for the first time, Steve Jobs was diligently guarding his children from his own invention, which is ironic to me because I would think that his house, with all the money he's made, all the inventions he, he's had, like there would be an iPad in every room, the, every, like the, the mirrors would be touchscreen, iPhones would be coasters, like just, it would be a, a, a techie's heaven, right? Like it would be Tony Stark's house brought to life. That's what I would imagine for Steve Jobs. But when asked how much his kids love the iPad once, he answered they haven't used it. He said, we limit how much technology our kids use at home. And I find that ironic because it's coming from the technology's inventor, right? And he's not alone. There's Evan Williams. He's the founder of Twitter, Blogger, and The Medium. He has the same rules in his home. And then Chris Anderson, who was the chief editor of Wired Magazine, and he's now the chief executive of 3D Robotics, has the same framework for his family. So the question is, why? What do these guys know that has them lead their households like this? And we know from the Bible, from our own framework, we understand that families are about forming people, growing children from little human beings into grown men and grown women. And that takes learning. That takes learning two things specifically, wisdom and courage. You know, there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge, and knowledge is so easy to come by these days, especially if you have a smartphone in your pocket. Like, Google is at my fingertips all the time. All those dumb questions, I don't have to ask Steph. I don't have to ask the person next to me. Like, when I'm wondering why chocolate isn't a vegetable because it comes from cocoa beans and beans are vegetables, I don't have to look it up. I don't have to ask. I just look it up on my phone because Google is right there. But wisdom isn't just knowledge about things. It's a deep understanding about complexities, about context, and it guides how we live. That takes life experiences that can't be duplicated by a screen, life experience that thrives in a healthy family. But what I want to focus on tonight, though, is the courage and the conviction that every person needs to walk in that wisdom. Because as Emily was hitting on in worship, life can get difficult. Life, let's be serious, will get difficult. And just as hard as it is to find the wisdom to do the right thing, it can be just as hard to have the courage and conviction to act out what we know to be wise. Because usually the loving thing, the wise thing, the, the thing God is calling us to do, it often takes sacrifice, can be scary, can be downright painful, and often it's hard. And the thing with our technology is it makes things easy, which can be great at times, but our lives can become so increasingly colonized by technology that no longer just aids us in doing tasks, it does it for us. Factors key to learning like effort, problem solving, they often take a back seat. You know, our, our technology can ask too little of us and make life very simple, which again is great for leisure, fantastic for vacations, right? But it's not ideal for learning. You know, at a young age, when you're learning and your brain is developing, you don't need everything to be made too easy. Difficulty and resistance, as long as they're not ruthless and discouraging, can be what our brains need to grow and adapt and get and learn. But ironically, easy everything can make learning hard. You know, a comparative study was done between students from Singapore 
and the U.S. Third grade students from Singapore and the U.S. You might ask, why Singapore? Well, because this little nation on the other side of the world always ranks towards the top of the world for mathematics. Whereas the U.S., we usually rank somewhere around 30, 30th, in the 30s every year annually. So people did some research. They took a fifth grade math word problem, gave it to third graders from Singapore, and then they took a fifth grade word problem and gave it to students from the U.S. Now those students from Singapore, on average, spent about an hour on this problem before they either solved it or threw in the towel and gave up. I'll throw it out to you guys. How long do you think the average American third grade student spent on this problem before they gave up? Five minutes, two minutes, 15 seconds. Y'all laugh, but that's the, that's, that was the closest answer. The average American student spent 34 seconds on the problem before they threw up their hands and gave up. And as they looked at the students in Singapore and, and, and how they were raised in school, two words were, were pounded into them and repeated to them again and again in their education system, attitude and perseverance. You know, when they did the experiment, none of these students from the Singapore went up and asked, why are we being given a math problem that's beyond anything we've learned? There was no complaining, and that spoke to their attitude. And after they couldn't figure it out by themselves, they got together in groups and huddled up to try to, you know, scheme it out together, think it out together, and that spoke to their perseverance. And to come full circle to Steve Jobs, maybe in keeping his own technology from his children, it was because he realized in the early years we need rewarding, difficult, embodied learning that sometimes screens can't produce. One of my favorite examples of just learning and discovering is from the 17th century. It's something that challenged me. A man named John Flamsteed. Anybody heard of him? John? Nope. All right. <laughs> he invented the mural arc, mapped the stars, and it, it was a huge breakthrough for 17th century navigation because up to that point, the sailors relied on celestial maps that were imperfect. So their trips were hit or miss as they're trying to navigate the oceans to bring uh, uh, resources across the ocean. What was it? One in every five voyages ended in disaster. So the ocean was just becoming a graveyard. They were rolling the dice to get to where they wanted to go. And I, there's a short video I want to show on Jam Flamsteed because it's so much cooler than me uh, speaking on it because I, I, it's Josh Brolin who's got a cooler voice that narrates it. So there's a, a short video on John Flamsteed. I just want to show real quick. For 14 months, Flamsteed has been building his mural arc, a telescope moved by a precision gearing system that measures the angle of the stars in the night sky. 46. The king invests in the project, but the money runs out. Flamsteed spends his life savings to bring his dream alive. Higher. A quarter of a million dollars in today's money. Serious. Serious crossing. Flamsteed gives each star a unique marker, 28,000 measurements recording their exact position, tripling the number of known stars to nearly 3,000. The greatest breakthrough in navigation since the compass. Seven. Star charts 15 times more accurate than before. 
saving money and lives. Flamsteed's a hero. He, you know, changed the world irrevocably by creating this, these accurate measurements. It's like these sailors went from having a rough, you know, hand-drawn map to having a satellite photograph, beautiful, you know, GPS-inspired image. New measurements that one day will help guide men to the moon. So often we think about the progress of science. We think about that aha moment, that flash of insight. We don't recognize so much of science is dogged hard work. And Flamsteed was the ultimate grinder. So I show that because Steph and I used to watch that show, uh, I think it's Mankind, the History of Us, whatever it was. Uh, we would watch that over dinner. I can remember when I saw this about Flamsteed, like it, it challenged me. So we had dinner and then I, would go, I went to my computer and I started Googling about him. And it's true what they say in the video. He made 28,000 measurements and calculations. And he made his first measurement on September 11th of 1689. And then he made his final measurement on December 27th of 1719, some 30 years later. And I remember just being profoundly impacted by that, thinking about that and questioning myself, do I have that kind of perseverance, that kind of grind where I would be so dedicated to something and not distracted, where I would give my life savings and spend 30 years to do something, especially something that wasn't going to directly benefit him, but was just going to benefit the world. And, and I love what the man from the video says, where he says, so often we think about the progress of science and think of that aha moment, that flash of insight, but we don't recognize that so much of science is dogged hard work and Flamsteed was the ultimate grinder. And I don't know how he would have defined a grinder, but no doubt it would have included the right attitude and perseverance. So why do I share all of this, right? And not just so we can have a, a personal account for my life or a fun history lesson or not to indict our education system in the U.S., but I, I share it because all of us should be, first of all, lifelong learners. But then as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't just concern ourselves with our education. We concern ourselves with our sanctification, which is becoming more and more like Christ every day, right? We're justified through what Jesus did on the cross and what we celebrated in communion. That's our justification. But sanctification is how we become more and more like Jesus Christ in our lives day to day through everything we do. You know, I started following Jesus Christ as a senior at William & Mary. I was set to graduate from my college education with high marks, but I was just beginning my process of sanctification. And now, the, the longer I followed Christ, it's been about a little over a decade now, I realized that one doesn't completely surrender your life to Christ in an instant, but that which is lifelong is surrendered over a lifetime. And the longer I follow Christ, I realize that the kind of spiritual transformation I need, the deep and lasting transformation, it takes the right attitude and it takes perseverance. It takes a willingness to grind. It takes a willingness to persevere. You could take that quote that man said in that video and apply it to our sanctification where I think, you know, we think about the process of sanctification and we think of that altar moment, right? that flash of insight, and we don't recognize that most of sanctification is dogged work that takes perseverance. Persevering in obedience, persevering in our commitment, taking up our cross daily, and following Christ. And as I follow Christ, I need to tune my heart to the move of a sometimes slow but always perfect hand of God. The hand of God that made Noah persevere out on that boat with those animals in the stink until it stopped raining. The, the God that made the Israelites persevere for 40 years before they would take the promised land. 
The God that would make Mary and Martha persevere and wait for Jesus to come before he raised Lazarus. Or the, the God who made the woman with the issue of blood persevere for 12 years before Jesus would pass by. The God who made the whole world wait for days between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And then the God that would make his early church wait for the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. But if you look at the Israelites who had to wander in the desert for 40 days before entering the promised land, God said to them in Joshua 1.3, the generation that would take the promised land, he said to them, I will give you every place you set your feet as I promised Moses. He's saying, look, I promised the same to the generation before you, but they wouldn't move their feet. And guess what? They didn't walk into it. You know, that journey from Egypt to the promised land was meant to be a brief stage. It really would have took just weeks for them to get from one of those areas to another geographically. But because of their lack of faith, they took what was meant to be a stage and they turned it into a state. God said, hey, you don't want to take the land? Cool. Go wander in the wilderness so the next generation can. And we as a generation, just because of our culture, we so often forget how to wait well. Because in our culture, we get instant everything. Google, I think, is, I'm trying to remember the fact, they, they've designed it so that their goal is that a page will load in a half a second because they know if it takes more than two seconds, you'll either abandon the search altogether or hit refresh. Like, we just expect things in an instant. We expect to be able to get microwaved results, and we simply, less and less in our day, have to wait for much. So sometimes in our waiting, we can just forget how God asks us to wait because I think sometimes we can get patient confused with complacent. God asks us to be patient, but very rarely at all does he ask us to be complacent. So often, especially in the church, we think we're walking in faith when really we're just standing in hope. Right? We got a wishbone. We ask, but do we have a backbone to follow it up with? Right? Praying for that job, but have you had the backbone to fill out a resume and go out and take some interviews? Right? Praying that your kids will be disciplined, but do you have the backbone to discipline them? All these areas in our life where, where we might think we're walking in faith when really we're actively just standing stationary in hope. No grit, very little grind, no fight, and no faith. And it's why in Judges, the book after Joshua, the generation after the one Joshua led, we see God in Judges 3 willing to leave conflict, willing to leave enemies around his people, and he did it on purpose. It says in the passage we read that he did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. He did it to teach. First, I believe he did it to teach them about peace. See, he promises them peace as they're going into the promised land, and yet nations were left there that wanted to wipe out their very existence. So they learned quickly the, the lesson on peace that we all will at some point in this life, that peace isn't the absence of conflict, but peace is the assurance that God is with us in every conflict, that God never leaves nor forsakes. His rod and staff are with us in every valley. That's peace. But second, it taught them about perseverance. And perseverance is pivotal because God will allow you to live wherever your faith settles for. He doesn't force us to act. He invites us and he calls us like he invited and called that generation to go into the promised land, but he doesn't force us. And if we don't have perseverance, we can take a, a stage and turn it into a state. We have to step into this perseverance in battling. God was teaching this new generation to be battle ready. This wasn't the generation of Joshua that had fought their way into the promised land. This was the generation after them. This was their descendants. They were young, and they would learn, but not by easy everything, by difficulty, met by grit and perseverance. 
Because life will be hard. Life will have difficulty. Life will have battles. Do we know how to grind? Do we know how to battle anymore today? Because God wanted his people to have battle experience. You know, in life, as you begin to map out and reflect on your life, you realize that you're either in a battle currently or you're coming out of a battle in your life or you're headed into one. And I think sometimes we can catch this this wrong perspective where if I'm in a battle and if I'm going through something, then there must be something wrong with my faith. Like I don't have enough faith or my faith is deficient, but so often God is perfecting our faith. It's not a problem with your faith. You're just walking through the process of faith. And you know, the reward of winning a battle in Scripture so often is a greater battle. Look at the life of David, right? A shepherd chasing off bears, killing lions, trying to take his sheep. And the reward for that is, hey, you've been trained with a sling and a stone. Now go take out Goliath. And that's what we learn about in Sunday school. But if you read your Bible, that just set him up to be a king that won battle after battle in the Lord's name. He just kept escalating and escalating new battles. Do we know how to battle anymore? Or do we, influenced by the technology of our day, expect very little resistance, expect very little waiting, and expect to have to use very little effort? You know, too often, I think we want to a walk with God where he removes every obstacle and fights every battle for us, where energy, effort, and the kind of grind that John Flamsteed had are optional. And too often we don't account for the fact that God wants his people to know how to fight, to have perseverance. The enemy would love for us to think that our battles are reflective of a faulty faith, when in reality God is actively using those battles to build and perfect our faith. It says in James 1, The author of James basically says, hey, rejoice in your battles. He says, rejoice in your sufferings. How can he say that? Why can he say that? Because James realized that God wants us to learn not through ease and everything easy, but through difficulty. Our sanctification grows like our education often does through tests. It says in James 1 verses 3 through 4, he says, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James makes clear in this verse that one of the keys to our maturity is a perseverance. And the enemy would love for our easy everything culture where we don't have to wait, we very rarely have to work for, for the things that we expect to just be given to us to rob us of our grit and rob us of our perseverance. Because again, that can make temporary stages into permanent states where we lack perseverance and we settle for, say, the base of the mountain rather than climbing the mountain God's given us to take. There was a a quote, I can't remember who said it, but it was in my notes, that the only time you start at the top is when you're digging a hole. Maturity and sanctification is a gradual climb from the bottom. You know, I think we admire mountaintop moments, though, right? The highlight reels, the Sports Center top 10 or, or or. When we see our favorite musician shred a solo, Ed Massey up here on the electric, right, whatever. <laughs> we, we admire that, but sometimes, like, those things look spontaneous, but we forget the process of learning, the attitude and the perseverance and the labor it took to develop the skill that's able to do those things almost spontaneously. Like, people, they have clip-on man buns now. Clip-on man buns. We don't even want to wait through the process of growing our hair out where we can just buy a man bun and not even go through that process, right? There's two tragic things happening here. One, man buns, and two, our unwillingness to endure the in-between of pressing through the seasons of not yet where we're called to persevere. 
know, here's the thing about the mountaintop or climbing any significant mountains. You don't just march straight to the top. You don't just get airlifted to the top of Everest. You know, Mount Everest has only seen a few thousand humans reach its summit. There's a neighboring mountain, K2, which is more difficult to climb. It's not quite as tall, but it's, it's much more difficult to climb. Only 300 and some people have reached the top of that mountain. More than that number have died trying to get to the top. You know, if it was as simple as flying in a helicopter and dropping down to the top of the mountain, all the rich and famous would have done that already. But you have to climb up a mountain and come back and climb up a little more and then come back and then climb up a little more and then come back just to acclimate your body to the climb before you can ever reach the summit. Now, how much of our life looks like this? Working our way up, coming back to base camp, working our way up, fighting, persevering when we want to look for the God to just airlift us to the top, right? To make every mountain low, but God calls us to take mountains. You know, Peter said in his letter to the persecuted and suffering church in 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. And then he says in verse 9, remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. When we look at James, James says you can humbly embrace battles and suffering because, you know, he's perfecting your faith. And Peter says, hey, you can humbly embrace these battles and suffering because, you know, at the right time, he lifts you up and he elevates you. We can embrace those seasons of battling when we realize that following God doesn't mean he removes all the obstacles. But he's with us in them so that we can rise above them again and again as he raises the bar and we slowly make our way up the mountain he's called us to. You know, Thomas Edison, another great inventor of technology, once said that opportunity is missed by most people because it look, or excuse me, it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. You know, the opportunity to take the promised land was missed entirely by the first generation of Israelites because it looked like work. It looked like it was going to take fighting and battling to take. That second generation of Israelites under Joshua missed the opportunity to take the land completely because it took too much work. When we miss opportunities that God has for us, because it looks like work, again, we can turn stages into states, fail to learn by dodging difficulty and stunt our growth. Now, that's why we have grown men who are really nothing more than boys that have grown up, right? You can say that for both genders. Adults that really are just grown kids. And I'd argue it's why a lot of, a, a majority of marriages in the U.S. fail. Because we've forgotten that pop songs actually have it right. Love is a battlefield. You know, our society skips from hookup to breakup because it lacks the perseverance to make up, to, to, to work through things. Love at first sight has met breakup at first hardship. And teenagers, 30% of teenagers break up through text. Like, that's too much work to even break up. So I'll just text you and let you know we're finished. We're done. we got to learn perseverance in our loving. How many of you guys have watched The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? You can raise your hands or not, but I've seen your statuses. I know who you are. My wife does. She's not here. She would tell you anyways. How many of you guys have watched this other show, The Biggest Loser? Y'all can put your hands down. I just need to drink some water. <laughs> Here's a nugget for you that entertainment news can back me on, okay? The Biggest Loser has led to more successful marriages than The Bachelor and The Bachelorette combined. 
The program that's built on a focus on losing weight has a better track record for creating lasting relationships than the one that's created for creating lasting relationships. But you know, the, the Bachelor and the Bachelorette, it's about finding that Barbie or Ken equivalent and quickly matching them up with somebody who looks and appears good for them. But the biggest loser is about improving yourself slowly. It's about setting goals and, and having the right attitude and persevering towards those. And relationships built in the biggest loser aren't founded on pursuing a person. It's built on pursuing the same mission. Now, how powerful for us as believers where so often, I know for me, I was pursuing God, and then all of a sudden I see Steph over here as I'm running my race. She's in the lane next to me. I'm like, hey, let me get your number, right? <laughs> but we were chasing after the same goal, pressing towards the same finish line. And yes, the race will have hurdles. That race you run together will have battles. Love involves battling together, persevering together, even as we grow as two broken people, finding more wisdom and more courage together. You know, love is this battlefield, and the battle together takes trust. Trust is built over time. It's built over time as we do life together, the good and the bad. You know, Steph and I made this vow to do life and persevere together at our, at our wedding. And, uh, you know, our first song, first dance was great. But my, one of my favorite memories from our wedding is the last song of the night was a slow dance. And all these people whose marriages we'd admired, we'd uh, watched and taken notes from all of us were on the dance floor. There was a lot of people. There were some 350 people at our wedding, and all these couples were out dancing on the floor to the song, uh, I Only Have Eyes for You by the Flamingos. Gentlemen, with all the things that try to take our eyes this direction or that direction or distract us, go listen to that song like 100 times straight. It's a great one. It's a classic. But let me ask you, what are some of your favorite love songs? That's one of mine. What are some of your favorite love songs? All time. You and me, Dave Matthews. Thank you, sir. Who else? It's your love. Lady in red. It's a good one. Endless love. Nice. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite love songs, it's by a group called the Abbott Brothers, and it's called Love Like the Movies. And it says, you want to be in love like the movies, but in the movies, they're not in love at all. With the twinkle in their eyes, they're just saying their lines, and so we can't be in love like the movies. And then in one of the verses, it says, in the ending, there's always a resolution, but real life is longer, or more than just two hours long. You know, movies and Netflix, they're great for binges, right? They're not great for setting realistic expectations because solutions to problems are found in 30 minutes or 60 minutes or 90 minutes. And depending on your definition of the word binge, entire seasons of issues can be resolved in weeks, days, even hours, right? But enduring the hard seasons in our life and love, it takes more than that. It takes time. It takes commitment. It takes perseverance. Again, surrendering something like your life takes a lifetime to surrender. And the intimacy you seek will take perseverance. It's the same with people, and it's true with God. God is always playing the long game. He's always preparing, and he's preparing his people for what he has prepared for them. That takes bumps on the road. That might take some hurdles. That might take some battles. And the fruit is perseverance. The fruit is like the David, the fruit that David had, where he knew just how strong the God he served really was. And it boils down to that. We live to serve God. 
You know, the key to longevity, the key to perseverance, I truly believe is realizing that every day you live, every moment you spend to serve God is an honor. You'll persevere and endure anything for that. Because I've seen folks quit. I've seen folks tap out. I've seen folks that have served the church in a major way for decades say, I, I'm, I'm done. But Joshua 3.5, it's a verse that God really stirred in my heart before we came here to the south side. It's, it's in Joshua 3.5 when Joshua was about to lead the Israelites over the Jordan River, through the Jordan River. We went over the water. They went through the water, right, to this land God was calling them to. Coming from Newport News, it was like the same for us. And he says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. You know, there are people in this room who took risks, moved their family, uprooted their household only to put down a, a, a new one so that there would be a campus, church campus, for others to put down roots at. And sometimes we miss the courage of the people we do church with weekly. Jesus said he'd build his church on a rock. Why? Because the church isn't built on people who come and go. It's built on people who persevere, who stay, and who grind. It's not just building this church. It's the same way with our sanctification. Will we stay? Will we grind? Will we persevere? Will we dare to look at the challenge in front of us as a quest God is calling us to, a battle that might benefit us? To step into the deep issues and trust God to be the solution. To let God teach us how to have greater grit and perseverance and integrity. You know, in, in Luke 21, Jesus is in the middle of prophesying these hardships that the church was going to walk through in the end times. Battles both real, uh, physical, and then psychological that would face his followers. And he says in Luke 21, this is the message version, he says, stay with it. That's what's required. Stay with it until the end. You won't be sorry, you'll be saved. You know, I don't know if it's in your learning, if it's in becoming more Christ-like that you want to give up. You've stumbled again and again. I would tell you tonight, stick with it, persevere. I don't know if it's in your battling that you want to give up. Again, battling your flesh or, or, or battling a, a person, right? Whatever it might be, persevere and stick with it. I don't know if it's in your love that you want to give up. Come on, those people who are battling, Jesus said, love your enemy, right? That spouse we're enduring through battles and persevering with, persevere, stick with it. You won't be sorry. You'll be saved. You know, tonight we pulled from Steve Jobs. We pulled from John Flamsteed. But in these, we pulled from the ancient Israelites. But in times where we're ready to throw in the towel, the one we look to and worship and point to above all things, obviously, is Jesus Christ. And it says in Hebrews 12, in the message version, if I could have the worship team come up, it says in Hebrews 12 in the message version, strip down and start running and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God, he could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility he plowed through, and that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Come on, if we could stand we're going to close in worship. We're going to sing Good, Good Father again. But I want us to reflect on the Jesus and his sacrifice that we celebrated earlier in communion. I love that we're 
closing out the night, just again reflecting on what he did at the cross, enduring shame, the cross, whatever. And now he's in the presence of God. That long litany of hostility he plowed through, that suffering that he, he, he went through for us. Jesus, I pray that we would remember that tonight. You know, the bridge of this song we're about to sing says you're perfect in all of your ways. You're perfect in all of your ways. And God, I just pray that you would give us a fresh perspective where maybe we're in some kind of battle, we're struggling with something, and maybe we think, man, it's because, it's because my faith is lacking or you're beginning to doubt yourself, be discouraged, be ready to tap out. God, I just pray that you would remind us that you work all things for good. God, that you take our battles, you take our struggles, and as we persevere through them, you perfect our faith. Lord God, I just pray that you would give us your view of our circumstances. So often when we reflect on who you are, as this song does, and we remember who we are, we get all the perspective we need. But God, I pray that you would also give us discernment and wisdom. Sometimes the battles we're, we're walking into are because you've called us to them, because you're going to perfect our faith, and, and sometimes they're due to our own stupidity. God, and I just pray that you would give us discernment and wisdom, God, for each moment we're walking in. And if you guys need prayer for anything, I'll be up here. The birches are in the back to your right, and we would love to pray for you. But let's sing the words of these songs and remind ourselves that we, in every season, every circumstance, because life will have ups and downs, pits, peaks, and valleys, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a good father, and he's perfect in all of his ways.